morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you can enjoy curbside pickup, and take advantage of limited walk-in hours. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Rudy Ruiz, whose debut novel, The Resurrection of Fulgencio Ramirez, has just been published. Rudy, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you, Charlie. It's great to be here with you. So I talked to a lot of authors about, you know, the path that their novel took towards publication. And they say, oh, it took two years, it took three years, it took four years. You have a little bit longer story to tell. Tell us about how this novel evolved. Yes. Uh, thank you, Charlie. Uh, you know, it, it's been quite a journey for this novel. Um, I've been a writer, as you know, for, for quite a while. I started writing as a kid, really, but uh, and, and have published some nonfiction and um, short stories over the years. Um, but this novel, I started working on it 22 years ago in 1998. Um, and uh, it was just a long journey. I wrote the first draft really just in a few months. Um, mm -hmm. And and then um, just kind of came close to being published early on, but, but it didn't. Um, and so I just took that as an opportunity to keep coming back to it time and again over the years in between other writing projects to to try to to try to you know enhance enhance it uh, improve it and and eventually get it to that point where where people um, responded to it you know and Blackstone Publishing um, a couple of years ago just fell in love with it and and signed me on for for a two book uh, deal and and so I'm excited to have it come out now. And did you have in in the in those years did you have other trusted readers that that you know you showed drafts to that gave you feedback as you were developing the book? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think my wife's always kind of my, you know, my yeah. first, uh, my first go-to trusted reader. Um, and she's very supportive, but, but very honest as well, you know, and so she, um, she loved the book. Um, you know, she always had very, very positive, encouraging things uh, to say uh, to me about it. And, and there were times when I was a little bit discouraged and thought well you know this book will never see the light of day and she would and she would tell me uh i just she would tell me she just had this feeling that someday you know kids would be reading it students would 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 maybe read it in in classes and stuff like that so that was very uh very encouraging and, and i kept going back to it yeah yeah so i always like to talk about openings for one thing it's easier to talk about the beginning of a book without spoiling it for our, for our listeners um but i love opening sentences that are that are short and to the point and yet really make me curious about what's going on and i just want to read your opening sentence and then ask you about it it's it's short and to the point the obituaries were always the first thing he turned to in the newspaper why did you want to start that way? And especially that, that very loaded word, it seems to me, obituary is the second word of your novel. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it really just came to me as an inspiration. That's definitely not a line that I reworked a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. um, but I kind of, uh, I just, when I, when the story came to me, I just, 
it was partially inspired by, by, by some stories that my father had shared with me uh, growing up about different experiences in his life. And I think maybe in the back of my mind, I, 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 I had this idea, like, what if, you know, what if, what if my father's life had kind of taken a totally different course uh, than it had, than it did, you know? And I kind of envisioned uh, this character started kind of coming out of that, that was sort of inspired by him, but become, became a different person. And I thought of this, of this, of this man who um, sort of had, had, his life had not taken the course that, that he really dreamt of or wanted to, and he was sort of waiting for a chance to try again or to start anew and, and to sort of almost like relive his life or have a second chance at his life. And, um, and so I just had this, this image of, of this man, Fulgencio Ramirez, sitting in his, in his drugstore because he's a pharmacist uh, and starting every day with that ritual, waiting for someone to die uh, yeah. so that he yeah. could begin again. You know? and, I, and you're right. I mean, I figured that would catch the readers, sort of hook them with a the curiosity of like, who is he waiting uh, to see in the obituary and how is it going to you know, change his life? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought I thought it was a it was a great opening line. Now, I I uh, find that I spend more time re rewriting the first two or three pages than I do working on any other twenty or thirty pages. Did, was that true for you? You said you said this first line didn't get rewritten much, but but how about the opening? And what's your balance of writing and rewriting as you uh, as you work on? Uh, that's a good question. It's interesting, you know, especially speaking to another author and like hearing kind of how different authors approach their craft and, 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 and experience, uh, you know, these different aspects of, of bringing a novel to its fruition. Um, you know, for me, it, it seems to me like in this book, I really, it started out very strong when I was writing it, like the first, I'd say like the first half of the book didn't change much mm -hmm. over the years. Um, and a lot of feedback from various readers over the years as I was working on, you know, trying to get it published, uh, whether they were agents or, or editors that, that ended up, you know, passing on the book. But, but the feedback was often, I love the first, I love the beginning of the book. I love the first half of the book. And then you just kind of lose me a little bit, you know, in the, in the second half. And, and then, it, and then it, so based on that feedback over the years, I really worked where I focused my work a lot on this particular novel was in the second half. Um, really figuring out where the story, it kind of had a strong start to the story, a strong premise. And I, I guess at some point in the middle, I just had to strengthen and enrich the journey of the characters and, and make it, you know, as compelling as possible for the readers. And that's where I spent most of my time editing on this novel. And, and I think it was time well spent because, um, you know, over the years, I just kind of, as a person, one matures, one gains different experiences. And I think I was able to imbue Fulgencio with more nuance and make yeah. his journey in, in sort of the second half kind of in the later years of his life as he's waiting for this thing to happen and his chance with his old sweetheart to reemerge. Um, it, it, it helped me make all of that more, um, I guess, credible or believable and, and make it more um, alluring to the reader to, to, to stay on that journey. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, we've been teasing our listeners a little bit about what this novel is really about. And as you said, it does have a, a very strong premise. So tell us, tell us the premise of the novel and the, you know, sort of the basic setup without, without giving away too much of that 
well rewritten second half. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, you know, uh, it's a story set in the, it, it takes place mostly in the 1950s and 1980s. And it opens with Fulgencio um, basically reading this obituary, finding out that his nemesis, this, this man who he's been waiting to, to um, you know, to find in the obituaries uh, ha has ended up there. And, uh, and so it kicks off his pursuit of trying to win back uh, the love of his life, uh, Carolina Mendelssohn, this, uh, this woman that was his high school sweetheart. And, uh, and so then you start going back in time to the 50s and you follow them, uh, falling in love, you know, Fulgencio growing up. And you, and you learn that Fulgencio is just very uh, fascinating character. I've gotten so many interesting reactions from people. You know, some people yeah. say like, oh my God, he's so stubborn and, you know, he drove me crazy, but then I also love him and I want to see him succeed. And, and so he was kind of a, you know, a complex kind of guy, like a lot of people we know and love in our families or, or friends that, that, you know, nobody's perfect. And they've got these, you know, sometimes they, the more, the great qualities they have, those great qualities are sort of balanced out by, by flaws, you know, and Fluencio is a flawed, a flawed person. And part of it is he's haunted by this old family curse that goes generations back. And that's kind of where the magical realism aspect of the novel style really uh, comes into play uh, within the plot. And he has to, he has to learn how to overcome this, this, this curse um, in order to be able to grow as a person, in order to be able to um, succeed in being a good partner for um, Carolina. Yeah. Now we were talking the other night in San Diego, even though neither one of us was actually in San Diego, but that's the world we're living in right now, <laughs> right. Uh, about the fact that you said Fulgencio is based, or at least inspired somewhat by your father. Tell us, tell us about your, your dad and your relationship with him and how that plays out in the character of Fulgencio. Um, well, you know, I was very fortunate. Uh, I, I consider my dad a very good father and um, he, he passed away in 2015 and I I dedicate, uh, have dedicated this, this novel to his memory. Um, I had a, a, a very good relationship with him, you know, most of, most of my life. And um, he uh, was, in my eyes, a larger than life kind of guy. He, he just had a, this big personality. He was very uh, passionate, like Fulgencio is, and um, driven, like Fulgencio is, and talented, uh, like Fulgencio is. And, um, you know, he was the son of immigrants growing up in the U.S.-Mexico border, which is where this story is set uh, in a kind of mythical town I, I made up inspired by, by uh, the border town where my dad and I both grew up. Yeah. And it's called La Frontera in the, in the book. And, and so he was the first one in his family to, um, you know, go to college. Um, he, was, um, he was really the first one in his family to be successful by American uh, standards, you know, he owned his own business and he, he made his own way. Um, and then his roots, however, uh, his heritage as a, as a Hispanic, um, you know, American was, uh, uh, was very important to him. He, he was very fluent in Spanish. He loved the old traditional music of Mexico, which was something that he shared with his family and friends. And he sang these beautiful Mexican songs. And so I wove those into the into the story and Fulgencio sings those songs and in a way they chronicle his emotional journey, uh, you know, from falling in love to heartbreak to hopefully redemption 
uh, all along the way. So, so he was a big inspiration. Of course, I fictionalized and I departed from, from, uh, from his real life. Um, and, and I turned it into this magical realism tale. And I think that really helped me, of course, branch away from it being like a memoir or a biography yeah. and, and turning it into really um, a make-believe story that, that, that readers could really sort of be swept away by. Now, and you talked about your use of these traditional songs, which I thought was great. And you talk about the way they appear on on the page, um, because you use both lang two languages, right? And when those songs are on the... Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm you know, talking here about in the English language edition of the book. We're going to talk about the right. other edition in just a <laughs> Yeah, in the English language of, uh, version of the book, which is the, the version I, I wrote the novel in originally, um, it's a very bilingual, bicultural experience that I hope the reader feels immersed in. And it's really kind of my representation of what it felt like growing up on the border. I grew up very bilingual as well. And I spent time on both sides of the border in the US and Mexico. And, um, and there people who are bilingual very fluidly tend to move back and forth between the two languages. And so I really pepper a lot of Spanish throughout the story, but but I always try to do it in a way that the context or the conversation or dialogue helps the reader understand what is being said, even if, even if they don't speak Spanish or read Spanish. And then with the songs, the songs are, of course, they're completely in Spanish, but I, I was concerned that, you know, it would be impossible to get the full understanding of the song from context. So um, I put the English translation of the song um, next, to the, next to the Spanish so that the readers could really understand what the songs were about because because to me the songs really tied very directly to uh the feelings that Fulgencio as a person uh was experiencing at that point in the story and so they really gave a great glimpse uh into who he was yeah yeah so you we've been talking about the resurrection of Fulgencio Ramirez but you actually have two books that came out last week because you published this book both in English and then you also wrote an edition in Spanish, not not translated by somebody else, but but you did this yourself. Talk a little bit about that experience of of translating your own book. Yeah, it's it's um, it, I mean it's 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 a rewarding you know experience uh, for me. It's it's funny because sometimes I when I read it in Spanish, there's certain things like I even like or I like it in a way sometimes even more. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. just because. Even though I wrote it in English, I mean, Spanish is, uh, we talked a little bit about this last time we spoke about how romance languages just have a very poetic, lyrical, yeah, you know, yeah. melodic kind of quality to them. And, and it, it, they, well, they're romantic, you know, so for a story like this that has romance and magic and so forth, it feels very authentic and very natural to hear the words in Spanish. So, so for me, it was a lot of fun. And I like writing in Spanish. I don't write that much in Spanish. Um, but but when I do, it's a, it, 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 it's an interesting feeling because just like when I when a person that's bilingual speaks a different language, they feel a little bit differently. Like they express themselves a little bit differently. You know, of course, this had to be the same story in both languages, so I couldn't yeah. I couldn't go off on a tangent. But it's a it's an enjoyable experience. Well, I mean, I'm always fascinated by I I'm not fluent enough in any other language to to pass any kind of judgment on translations of my book, but I have taken, you know, a paragraph and back translated it. And sometimes my reaction is, wow, this translator is a, a way better writer than I am. They've made my prose sound, sound more poetic. But I think sometimes too, it is, as you said, it's because of, 
of the melody or the rhythm of a particular language, um, you know, as, as writers who write in English, we, we try hard to, to make our prose sound nice. Um, but Spanish is just such a beautiful language uh, that, it, that it must be a little bit easier to have that kind of um, sound to your prose when you're writing in Spanish. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's that um, kind of, especially if, 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 if the book or the text is um, something that is kind of romantic or very descriptive or there's a lot of imagery or, you know, it really lends itself, the Spanish language does, uh, to that sort of almost florid, <laughs> you know, uh, quality. Whereas to me, when I read English, I, I often think, English really lends itself to, if you start being too overly descriptive, it, it feels cumbersome. And, and like yeah, to me, yeah. English, in writing English and, and reading English often feels like a, a language that, that, that can and should be kind of lean and clean, you know? <laughs> I think there's a lot to be said for that. So you talked about how when you were using Spanish words in, in the English language edition, you use them in a context um, so that those of us who are less familiar with Spanish are able to figure out what's going on. I think that that's absolutely true. But speaking more broadly, I mean, you're writing a book that is really deeply set in a very specific culture. And yet, to me, as somebody who is essentially a foreigner to that culture, I found it eminently um, accessible and, and affecting. How did, you, how did you do that? How did you say, look, I want to be completely true to this culture, but not in a way that in a way that welcomes in readers from other cultures rather than sort of creating barriers for those readers. Yeah, well, thank you for expressing that because that's totally what I hoped for and, and I'm grateful that, that, that readers are experiencing it in that way. You know, I think I, I wanted to write a story that was rooted in that, in that culture and in that setting and, and, and yet make it accessible and universally appealing to people. And I think that, of course, the love story aspect uh, of the resurrection of Fulgencio Ramirez is something that's universally appealing because everybody loves a good, a good love story, you know, Um, star-crossed lovers and all that. I mean, it's just like in our DNA. (laughs) Um, And, and then aside from that, I think um, there's other aspects that I think are very universally of interest or appeal to American readers because the immigrant story is just a very classic American story as well Uh, as a nation of immigrants you know there's been so many great American novels written by and about the immigrant experience Um, and and then I think the 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 whole aspect uh, when I explore the border I kind of explore the fluidity of the border and how the border in Fulgencio's world and in his life isn't really a division. It's a play, It's something that he is accustomed to crossing. It is just part of his life going back and forth across this physical border. And so likewise, it explores, it becomes like a metaphor for the border between life and death. Um, and that's why within the magical realism style of this novel, um, you'll see, the reader will see a lot of characters that have already passed away sort of in, in, in regular life, but their spirits hang out with Fulgencio and are his friends and his mentors. Um, And so that to me is also universally appealing, I think, and interesting to people. I mean, everybody loves the idea of staying connected to their loved ones, um, you know, beyond this lifetime, so to speak. And and everyone loves a good ghost story. So, (laughs) you know, I think those are things that appeal to a broad range of, of readers, hopefully. Yeah. 
Well, we get a hint of that magical realism in, in your first chapter. And I don't want um, readers to feel put off by this at all, because this is not a book where the magic overcomes the realism. It is very much a grounded narrative. Um, but it does have that magical realism element. And I wonder if you could talk about the influence of that movement on you and, and of, of um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez in particular, um, how, how have his works, you know, inspired you, influenced you and shaped the way that you write? Well, you know, I, I grew up uh, loving books and, 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 and loved reading from an early age. And I thank my, my mother for that because she uh, was uh, just loves books herself. Uh, she's 80 years old now and, and she's, you know, um, just always, always was uh, an avid reader. And um, however, when I was in college, it was the first time I started reading magical realism and, and it was the works of uh, the Gabriel Garcia Marquez um, that really just riveted me. And I've been reading a lot of books for classes, you know, like, like any other college student, high school student for many years and done my homework and read them and, and, and learned things from them. But I don't think I had ever, my imagination had never been so captivated as it was when I read Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And I, mm. I love the way he represented the culture, the spirituality of the culture and how that sort of uh, infuses the magical realism uh, approach and how he could make social commentary um, without beating you over the head with it. You know, he made you think when you read his books, but it wasn't like... Uh, let me hit you over the head with political, uh, you know, agenda. Right. So, so I found that all very inspirational. Um, and it definitely led me to want to uh, build on that style. And I wanted to try to, to see, I wanted to see a story or stories in that style reflecting like the uh, Latinx experience in the United States. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To me, I thought it would be cool because there's a lot of these great novels, like uh, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez is one of them, Laura Esquivel, um, Isabel Allende, and and they're they're all from like uh, you know Mexico or South American countries, and so I thought, oh, it'll be neat to sort of bring this style in into telling an American story about a, a Latinx character, um, and it's not only Latinx characters because his 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 uh, his girlfriend uh, Carolina is is Anglo. Yeah, yeah, but you know, uh, I wanted to see it kind of here on our on our soil. <laughs> I thought that was great. I thought that combination was was really fantastic. One of the things I think about when I think about Garcia Marquez, and I should have looked it up so I could quote it exactly. But going back to our our discussion of first sentences, that first sentence of a hundred years of solitude, where the, the sentence itself works almost in three different time frames he, he there's there's a flashback and a flash forward. It starts out you know many years later he looked back at. And that sort of reminded me of the way that you sequence time in this book. Can you talk about how your narrative moves around in time and, and why you wanted to sequence it that way? Yeah, I, I love that aspect uh, of magical realism. And of course, that opening line, which I don't remember word for word, but I remember <laughs> that the character, the narrator is talking about when his father took him to see the ice. The ice, yeah, yeah. yeah. The ice. And it was like, uh, I think it's for a lot of, People who love books, that is one of the most memorable opening lines, you know. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think there's so much going on there, like you said. For, for me, uh, the, the temporal aspect is interesting because, um, you know, 
I guess the longer you, <laughs> you're fortunate enough to, to live your life, uh, the, the more I feel like uh, time starts to really blur, you know, and you, you, you think about, when I think about when I was a kid, one of my big uh, sources of inspiration were my grandparents, and I used to love spending a lot of time with my grandmother. She'd be telling me all these great stories about when she grew up, and she lived to be 101 years old, so she wow. had these amazing stories, and and it's funny, like you think about sometimes when people get to their older years like that, you feel like they spend a lot of their time sharing the stories of, of their youth or their mm -hmm. childhood. And it's fascinating. And I thought, you know, as you live life, it's almost like um, time and, and, the, and that whole experience of life, although you may have experienced it in kind of a linear way, within your memory, it's not necessarily linear anymore. It's all sort of blended together and you can kind of sift through your thoughts and memories in a non-linear way based on what you want to think about or how you prioritize these things. And I thought that's an interesting way to tell a story um, as well, uh, you know? And, uh, and so yes, Fulgencio moves back and forth through time. Uh, three main time periods, the 80s, the 50s, and the 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I just feel like in the end, like trying to write a story about the totality of a character's life, uh, it was kind of fun to do it that way and kind of, heightens the intrigue or the suspense for the reader, it not being linear. Yeah, yeah. I, it strikes me, I'm thinking now especially of the part of the story in the 1950s, um, where Fulgencio has fallen in love with this Anglo young woman. And it, to me, it feels, I think you even used the phrase earlier, star-crossed lovers. It feels Shakespearean. It feels, or even like an ancient Greek tragedy. You know, this, this longing that he has and this relationship that seems to be maybe not completely forbidden by society, but certainly not encouraged. Um, and my question for you is simply in the, in these border regions where we have this Anglo Hispanic society, has anything changed since 1956? Would they find more friendly ground there for the kind of relationship that they're pursuing? Yeah, you know, it's like all things in life. It seems like we take, uh, you know, two steps forward, one step back. <laughs> um, so there definitely was progress uh, over the years, you know, from the 50s when I would hear the stories of how my dad described growing up on the border. Uh, certainly there was a lot of change and progress by the time that I was growing up on the border, like in the 80s. And, um, and so social tolerance and acceptance, uh, you know, uh, of, of relationships between races and ethnicities certainly I think became much more, uh, much more welcoming, you know, much more accepting. And especially on the border where you have like a 90% uh, Latino population uh, in, in these border communities, um, you know, it, it's certainly different than say in a large uh, urban center in the North of the United States where maybe you have a very small uh, Latino population. So I think it definitely changed. The, uh, uh, when I say one step, two, two steps forward, one step back, I think the part that has been tough to see as a border native has been that over the past few years, ever since really September 11th uh, happened, the border security you know, had to obviously be increased as a result of what happened on September 11th. But unfortunately it, it has, the, the, the border as barrier has continued to sort of, you know, gain, gain momentum or, or gather steam due to a lot of sort of the politicization of the border, if you will. And so, whereas when I was a kid or when my dad was a kid, it was really easy to go back and forth across the border 
and it was easy from people uh for people from Mexico to come to the U.S. and vice versa there on the border. Right now, it's extremely difficult. Yeah. And it's only gotten worse with uh, the pandemic. Um, yeah. You know, with the pandemic, the border is, is technically closed as far as for visitors. So you have families and people that live in on the Mexican side of the border. And if they're Mexican citizens, they used to be able to come over regularly and visit maybe their kids and grandkids who are American citizens. And right now they can't. Yeah. Uh, the American citizen can go over there and visit and then come back home. But, but, you know, their Mexican relatives can't do the same anymore for now. So hopefully of course the pandemic will, will come to an end. And, and, yeah. and yeah. I mean, one of the things that fascinated me about that, especially that 1950s time period, but, but some of the others too, is like you said, the sort of fluidity of the border that it wasn't even, you know, it was like crossing back and forth between Georgia and Florida or something, you know, and, and Fulgencio has uh, a family property, I guess you would say on, on, on the Southern side of the border. Talk, talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, uh, you're right. You know, when Fulgencio is a, is a young kid, uh, one of his mentors is his grandfather who lives out in a desolate ranch called El Dos de Copas, which means the two of cups. And, uh, it is, um, not a very valuable piece of land from a monetary perspective, but it's a meaningful, meaningful, priceless sort of place for the family because it's one of the last scraps of sort of their heritage uh, and their and their legacy as as settlers of that region back in like the 16 and 1700s. And Fulgencio doesn't fully understand all that, but he feels it. He he knows this is a special place, and he loves going out there. And later, when he when he is an adult, he, he lives out there and he just commutes to work at his drugstore uh, on the U.S. side of the border. Yep. And, um, and, that, and that ranch is sort of a place where the spirits roam, uh, roam free and magic is, you know, commonplace. And a lot of cool parts of the, of the journey for him to overcome that family curse take place out there on El Dos de Copas. Yeah. And that family curse is, is connected to a part of his heritage that, you know, I'd never really, really thought about. We, I think a lot of us, uh, um, you know, on this side of the border think um, Hispanic culture, you know, Hispanic comes from Spanish. These people are just all descended from people who came over from Spain. But, but Fulgencio has other blood within him, too. Talk a little bit about his, his other line of heritage. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's interesting and, 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 I'm I'm glad I didn't I didn't incorporate this part of the story like strategically or purposefully because of this but but when when you when you bring up that question it, it I'm glad that I did because um you know most most people who come from Mexico uh they're you know if they go do one of those ancestry.com <laughs> uh type of DNA tests yeah. they'll find that they have about half of their DNA coming from you know Spain and, and the Iberian Peninsula and another half from uh, what they what they'll call Native American when you do yeah. the ancestry deal, but but what it is, it's the indigenous peoples of of Mexico, um, uh, which included a variety of different groups. Uh, the Aztecs were one of them. Yeah. The Aztecs language was was called Nahuatl, and for Fulgencio, uh, part of his heritage is uh, you know comes from that background, and so he has an ancestor who uh, generations back wove this this curse, this maldición, de, de, la maldición de Cajapinta, it's called in the story, which is the curse of Cajapinta. And Cajapinta was the name of this old Spanish land grant that, that his ancestors lived on and had. 
but one of his ancestors was was you know part uh, indigenous and practiced sort of a blend of of, of magic that uh, has been practiced in Mexico and in uh, you know for centuries, which sort of combines um, spiritualism from Catholicism with rituals and, and traditions that have their root in like the Aztec and other indigenous cultures. So, uh, so sometimes when the, when that curse or maldicion would kind of take over his thoughts, he would hear these words that to him didn't mean anything. He didn't know what those words meant, but there, they are these ancient Nahuatl words, uh, that were influencing his thoughts because of the curse. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the fact that, you know, we so often think of, especially a religion like Catholicism as being an either or proposition. You're either Catholic or you're not Catholic, but, but it's, is part of, it's very much a part of who he is, but it's not, it's not the only part of his spiritual life or his spiritual self. And, and um, I found that really fascinating the way that was, that was woven together. In Flahencio, it seems to me, and you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, that we find a character whose strength makes us admire him, but his weaknesses make us love him. Um, do, do you see him as a, do you see Flahencio as a tragic hero in the, in the sort of classical literary sense? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do see him as, um, you know, kind of a, kind of a, a tragic hero or, or what I used to, uh, I remember when I studied literature, uh, we call it the Byronic hero, which is kind yeah. of that hero that has a dark, kind of a dark side to them. And when I wrote the book, it wasn't as popular in pop culture, you know, when I wrote the first draft of the book. Yeah. Now, nowadays, I think, you know, there's definitely a trend in pop culture towards really embracing those types of complicated heroes um, that have a, they're not perfect, you know, they're, they're not the old John Wayne, you know, <laughs> uh, type of type, type of hero that used to be popular in the 50s and, and 60s. It's, 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 I think, an acknowledgement that nobody is perfect, that we all have flaws, that we all have like our personal challenges that we're working to overcome. And that, and that having that is just part of being human. And, and, and why I think it makes for a great hero is because, is because heroes have to be willing to uh, work on improving themselves, not just saving other people, you know, you have to, yeah, yeah. you have to also work on being a better person um, to, to, to in turn be able to, to, to uh, bring that to your relationships. And in this case, since it's a love story, I think it was even more important that Fulgencio have these flaws that, that you, you can root for him to, to overcome those and, and in the end grow as a person. Yeah, and I like the fact that both his, both his weaknesses and his strengths are really tied into his his ancestors, not just his distant ancestors, but also his more recent ones. And and in particular, I'm thinking of his mother. I mean, there are these there are these two things that I think that we that I found out early on in the book. One, I found out about Fulgencio's work work ethic, um, which you know is so much a part of, of of who he is. But also, there's this moment where his mother strikes him, and I, I wonder if you could talk about how how he's shaped by his we've talked about his sort of distance ancestors, but how he's shaped specifically by his relationship with his mother. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, a great question. Uh, and I think that, that that is a complicated relationship as parent-child relationships often are, you know, and when you have a, uh, I think I wanted to explore a little bit of the acculturation gap and generation gap that happens 
in immigrant families when the, the first generation of immigrants that, that comes, you know, here to the United States um, versus like then the next generation that's the first one that's born here. Right. And, and so Fugencio is, is that first generation that's born here right. and he's striving for this American dream and he's ambitious and he's driven and he wants to accomplish all these things. Um, and in a way, his mom feels a little bit betrayed and left behind uh, when Fulgencio starts to kind of, you know, get his wings <laughs> uh, and so forth. And, and, you know, she's worried like he's going to forget where he comes from or she's, he's going to forget his family. And part of it is also, I mean, part of it is a generation gap and a culturation gap. And, and another part of it is, I think uh, you, you pick up on it a little bit that, that Fulgencio was growing in what today would possibly be considered uh, an abusive environment in the sense that there was uh, you know corporal punishment and some unnecessary unnecessarily harsh types of, of physical violence and punishment from his parents uh, to him and his siblings and so I think in those types of households and environments when a person uh, so to speak gets out <laughs> uh, and escapes that environment as Fulgencio did there's feelings of you know, guilt on the, on the, on the person's behalf who, who leaves the environment because he's left other people in that environment. Uh, and then there's, there's feelings like a, a betrayal from, from the other side, like, Hey, how could you leave us in this, in this world of pain? You know? So I think it, it was, to me, it's a, it's a nuanced part of the story, but one that uh, Fulgencio throughout his life continues to try to work on healing. And this book is a lot about healing. Um, you know, in the end, when Fulgencio is fighting to overcome this, this curse, it, that curse was put on all of the men in, in his line of his, of his family. So in a way, when he, if he, if he manages to overcome the curse, I'm not going to give that away, but yeah. if he does, he's doing it not just for himself, he's doing it for his brothers and for any male, you know, descendants that, yeah. that, that, uh, that might suffer from the same curse. And so he, throughout the story, he, he does stay close to his mom and he does, he does stay close to his family members, and I think he he tries to heal those those wounds. Yeah, I think that you know that scene where he encounters again. I don't want to give much away, but where he encounters his mom in the grocery store, I think that really does exactly what you just said about you know not hitting the reader over the head with it, but it just suggests this this question about whether you know success or achievement in one culture necessarily means a betrayal of of another one, you know, and, and it doesn't, you don't have to answer that question. It's just, I, I just think it's nice that it, it floats out there. One of the other thing that floats out in this book is the smells and the food and these tactile moments, like a certain encounter with a rose bush. Um, can you talk about the way you engage our, our senses in your writing? Sure. Uh, well, you know, I always liked like. Uh, I think I mentioned this to you before, but I, I'm a movie uh, movie buff, you know, yeah. and I I I, I love uh, to write very uh, visually, uh, almost like cinematically. Like I want I want the reader to feel like they're there, you know, like like they're seeing the story unfold around them, and like they can feel it. And so I think that's where the other senses come in, and I admire that about about writers when they can kind of you know, think of all the senses and how can you engage those senses to really place the reader there? And it's everything from 
a color or the scent, uh, you know, the taste um, and, 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 uh, and the feeling. Uh, uh, and if you can do that, you know, that's when you can really immerse and transport the reader. And in this case, since to me, the setting, it's almost like a character itself, this, this place of La Frontera, I wanted it to feel like, like a, a journey to that place, re really remove the reader from their immediate surroundings. And, and right now I joke that it's kind of like gr good timing that they came out during the, the COVID era because it's like, we can't really travel that much for leisure yeah. right now. So if you, if you read this book, it's almost like a little trip to Mexico or the border uh, without having to deal with uh, getting on an airplane. Yeah, but we'll make you hungry though. I'm mean, gonna just warn people, they're gonna be hungry <laughs> when they read this book. Um, just one more, one more question about this culture divide. There's, so there's this, this guy, Pedro Infante, who's portrayed as sort of a hero and an idol in Mexico, but as, you know, almost as a cartoon in the United States. Um, and it seems to me that, that that duality points towards a divide that almost feels unbridgeable. And do you see your book as, as a, a one of the ways that we might try to start to bridge that kind of cultural divide? Yeah, I would, I would hope so. You know, I, I think, uh, I don't, I, I don't want to give away too much, but there's a part of the book that I mentioned that, that sort of moves into the future. Mm -hmm. um, the future in the book is actually the past for us now, but, <laughs> but within the perspective of the book, it is the future. <laughs> um, and uh, it was really the, an idea, a vision of, of how the border could be a place where people could come together rather than just be torn apart. Um, a place of unity and healing. And to me, I mean, I think that was very much part of my personal inspiration and personal vision when I was growing up on the border was, was the desire for it to be that. And, 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 and I could see and I could sense that the, the real possibilities in that because yeah. I knew plenty of people who lived very binational lives and uh, did work and business and, and, and had family and, uh, you know, just kind of move that fluid way across the border. And then, and then where I grew up in, it's Brownsville, Texas, uh, is where I was born and raised. And in Matamoros, Mexico is the sister city across the river. Uh, every year there's this big festival called Charro Days, uh, which is uh, Pedro Infante is an example of a charro, Mexican charro, who are these, these great, like kind of heroes of Mexican pop culture uh, over the years, kind of like we have our Western cowboy here in in um in the u.s well historically in mexico these guys were that's what they were like but they were also singing cowboys kind of like a roy rogers type of <laughs> type of thing and they were heroic and chivalrous and, and romantic and you know uh patriotic and, and all those great things so in, in in where i grew up uh there's actually a festival called charo days every year in in brownsville where uh they even have dignitaries from both sides of the border meet at the center of the bridge and have a, an opening ceremony and and all these things and it's really a celebration of the bicultural uh nature of the community yeah so to me like that was something i wanted to infuse the book with and share and yeah i, I think that those kind of bridges are are opportunities especially for people who didn't grow up on the border people from other parts of the country to get a closer look at the culture to, to, to connect more with it and to see the nuances more in where the culture is coming from and its heroes and its characters. Um, so that, like you said, it can be, it can go beyond caricature and it can go to a more, you know, a more fully uh, fleshed out understanding and vision of, 
of the culture. Yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin the speed round. <laughs> awesome. What word do you love to work into your writing? There's certain descriptive words like gleaming mm-hmm. or lurking. <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? I'm not going to say the word, but I, I'm, I'm not big on profanity. Okay. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> Where's your favorite place to write? I think my favorite place to write is my home office. I have a nice uh, home office, a nice desk, and I, I kind of find peace and quiet here. Yeah. Where could you never write? The kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Uh, the rule that you can't end a sentence with a preposition. Yeah, the ridiculous rule. But. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? I'm going to go with the Hardy Boys. But, right. yeah. And that's just because it goes back to our other discussion about <laughs> your book. <laughs> what are you reading now? Uh, I'm reading Charlie Lovett's uh, Escaping Dreamland. Now that one was, that's the first time that question has ever been a setup, I have to say. Because <laughs> I, I knew what Rudy was reading. Um, and I'm loving book, it. I'm loving it. What book would you like to have written? Oh, wow. A Hundred Years of Solitude. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? A biography. Mm-hmm. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I love to hear a reader say that they've seen themselves uh, reflected in uh, the story that I've written. This has been Inside the Writer Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Rudy Ruiz, whose new novel, The Resurrection of Fulgencio Ramirez, is available wherever books are sold. Rudy, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. It's been a pleasure. Inside the Writer Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, You can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to international bestseller Dean Kuntz. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.